Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, brothers and sisters, is our text for this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And if you're able to stand with me, please do so for the reading of God's Word in honor of God's Word. And I want to begin reading from chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is The Privilege of Gospel Partnership, Joy in the Face of or Joy Amidst Sacrifice. And we're going to be zeroing in on verses 17 and 18. But as you know, recently we were gone for a couple of weeks as a family. Uh, That's something that we do. It's our custom over the years to visit a couple of churches after I preach Christmas messages uh, wherever we've been in the past. And those Visits to healthy churches are often very refreshing for us, very revitalizing. Um, We're able to recalibrate and just be reminded of some wonderful things, including some benefits that we have as a church. Uh, One of the benefits that we were reminded of uh, at the top of the list when we visited these, these couple of churches was the fact that the kingdom is much bigger than us. Amen? The kingdom is much bigger than us. We were reminded that we're part of a bigger gospel enterprise, part of a bigger gospel team, that we're in partnership and in fellowship with other Christians beyond our own particular geographical context. And brethren, as you think about that, that applies also to our church. There is a partnership that we share and partake of as a local body of believers. And I hope that whenever you come together, whether it's Sunday morning or midweek as you gather in small groups and other things, that you remember that, that even within our own local church, we are co-laborers. We are side by side with one another. There is a wonderful partnership that we share vertically with the God of the universe in Jesus Christ and then on the horizontal level with all of those who are in Christ, who are in union with Christ. And of course, because of the fact that we are sinners saved by grace, amen, Man, that wasn't a very thunderous, loud amen. We are sinners saved by grace, right? All right, just checking, just checking. Because of the fact that we are sinners saved by grace, obviously in this partnership, it will often be challenging. We are all different. We're wired uniquely. We are imperfect. We're beset with weaknesses and and sins and struggles and all of that. And so that means that oftentimes in this partnership that we share together, there will be there will be relational sparks that will fly as we strive to partner together for the sake of the gospel. We understand that. Even so, even so in this wonderful gospel partnership, we understand that it comes with some wonderful blessings and some wonderful privileges. And this is what I want us to contemplate this morning for a little while 
As we dive back into the next major section of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 30. I want us to, to consider these next three weeks the privilege of gospel partnership with one another. And I want us to ponder the fact that though ministry is often hard and comes with its challenges and is often painful, right? Even in a greater way, it's a great blessing and a privilege to be in this grand enterprise of the gospel and to be partnering together. I want us to contemplate that beautiful reality. I mean, just consider what it took to bring you into partnership with other believers in this church, right? God sent His Son Jesus into the world to die so that we by faith are not only saved and rescued from hell and condemnation, but we are now in partnership and in union with one another because of Jesus. It took God's Son to bring us into this wonderful partnership together. And I pray and I hope that you value that. Paul was a man who did. He had many, many ministry partners. He was a man who valued those partnerships, who cherished those partnerships with his brethren. And of course, one of those partnerships were these Philippian brethren, this local church that he founded some 10 years before this, from the time that he writes. And even as he sits in jail now in Rome, not knowing what's going to befall him, awaiting the verdict from the high ups, Paul reminds this, this Philippian church of some wonderful benefits and privileges of gospel partnership. And he does it by way of the example of three fellow partners that they have. One is Paul, the other one is Timothy, and the other one is Epaphroditus, verses 17 through 30. And so this week, what I want us to focus on in in verses 17 through 18 today, we're going to learn of the mutual joy that we should pursue and can experience as partners in the gospel, even in the midst of the sacrifices that we make in service and ministry together. We learn this from the life of the Apostle Apostle Paul, his example of life and ministry and service to the Philippian church. Then next week in verses 19 through 24, we're going to see the mutual encouragement that we can share with one another amidst our service with one another. And we glean this from the example of, of Timothy's life and ministry to the Apostle Paul in particular. And then in verses 25 through 30, we're going to learn of the mutual comfort that we can share amidst our suffering. And we're going to see this in the example of the life and ministry of one Epaphroditus, who was a member of the Philippian church who had come to visit Paul, as we've seen before. And so it's through the examples of of these three servants of God, these partners in the ministry, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, that we can glean some wonderful privileges of partnering together for the faith of the gospel. And I think this is such a helpful um, uh, three-week study, brethren. Why? Why? Because I think it's very easy, if we're not careful, to allow service in the church to often become drudgery rather than a delight. To allow it to become a burden rather than a blessing. This could have been a danger for the Apostle Paul in the midst of what he's experiencing as well, right? He was a struggling sinner saved by grace just like us. And yet what we see in verses 17 through 18 is that he greatly appreciated and valued the partnership that he shared with this Philippian church. For Paul, it was a privilege to sacrifice for them. It was a privilege to serve them and to reap the spiritual benefits of that sacrifice and that service mutually. And so it follows then that if we too are going to appreciate and value the partnership that we share with one another as as brothers and sisters in Christ, then we need to understand a couple of things about ministry and service in the Christian life. 
If you're taking notes, write this down first and foremost. We need to, first and foremost, by God's grace, we must embrace the reality of sacrifice in Christian ministry and service. Embrace the reality of sacrifice in Christian ministry and service. I think we often forget this, even subtly and imperceptibly, that faithful ministry and service in the church brethren is, involves sacrifice. It involves putting the needs of others before our own. We are, by default, minimalists. We default in our own lives and we're content to do the bare minimum in life and in ministry. And we're content with that. It's following after the, the, our culture and getting our cues from our culture. That is a minimalist kind of culture and that infiltrates the church even for us as, as believers. But as like one mentor said to me once, he said, Kempis, those things most worthwhile in life require the greatest degree of sacrifice. I love that. Those things most worthwhile in life require the greatest degree of sacrifice. So true, isn't it? The fact is that ministry involves sacrifice. And no one understood this after the Lord Jesus more than the Apostle Paul. And so as he sits in jail now awaiting the final verdict, he uses this this familiar imagery with them of sacrifice of priestly service to describe and, and illustrate his own service and his sacrifice to these Philippian brethren. Look at verse 17 with me. He begins with this word, but, but, which is a contrast, right? It's a contrast with what? Well, remember back in, in verse 14, I know it's been a few weeks, but we were commanded in verse 14 to do all things without grumbling or disputing without complaining. Why? For holiness sake. For the sake of our witness before a lost world. And so Paul is contrasting that for his own personal life and example. He says, in contrast to that, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. What is he saying? He's saying this, even if my present imprisonment results in my death, Result in my martyrdom for your sake. I rejoice. What a statement. What a statement. Note this. For Paul, brethren, martyrdom for Christ was not the worst case scenario. It was the best case scenario, right? Remember how he summed up his life and ministry back in chapter 1, verse 21? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Whether I live or die, it's all about Christ. Paul viewed himself as expendable for the sake of the gospel. As expendable for the sake of his brethren. He viewed his life as a living sacrifice, as Romans chapter 12, verse 1 calls us to be as believers. This is what he's getting at here. It's all about sacrificing for my brethren, for the glory and the exaltation of Jesus. Note the the words that he uses in verse 17. Drink offering sacrifice, and service. Those are familiar words of Old Testament worship, of sacrifice, of of priestly service pictured in the Old Testament sacrificial system. In fact, I want to show you this. Go back with me. Keep your finger there in Philippians 2 and go back with me to Numbers chapter 15, okay? Numbers chapter 15. I want you to see this. Numbers 15. 
Moses, on behalf of God here, is giving instructions to the Israelites about the types of sacrifices and details about how they are to bring their sacrifices before the Lord when they arrive to the land of Canaan. Look at verse 8 of Numbers 15. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, verse 9, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half of a hin of oil. Verse 10, and you shall offer as the drink offering one half a hin of wine as an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each ox or for each ram or for each of the male lambs or for the goats, according to the number that you prepare. So you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. So what is Moses saying here? He's giving instructions and he says, hey, when you are sacrificing, he says, slaughter the animal, right? The priest will do that on your behalf, an unblemished bull in this case. Slaughter the animal, burn it on the altar, and the priest did this on behalf of the worshiper. But the sacrifice is incomplete until you do two final things. One, sprinkle the sacrifice with flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. And then two, the capstone of the sacrifice was the pouring out of water or wine in most cases upon that sacrifice by the priest. The priest would take the water or or most often the wine and, and pour it out beside or alongside of that particular sacrifice or directly on top of it. And as he did this, you know what happens. Due to the, the, the hotness of that sacrifice, the, the liquid would evaporate and the steam would rise up right to the air. And as that steam rose, it was a soothing aroma of worship to God. This is what is being talked about in verse 10. This latter drink offering poured out was what completed the sacrifice. It was the capstone of the sacrifice being offered by the worshiper. And Paul is saying here, he's saying, Beloved Philippians, this is what I am. I am a drink offering being poured out upon the sacrifice of your faith and your service. He says, I'm simply the topping. I am the modest complement and the completing act of the sacrifice and service of your faith. That's what he's saying. What a picture. And here again we see Paul's humility, don't we? His lowliness of mind. The very humility that he's called them to and called us to in all of chapter 2 and which he said is ultimately exemplified and modeled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kenosis, the self-emptying of the eternal Son of God during His humanity, right? The adding of a human nature to His already divine nature. Ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate example of humility, but Paul also is a man who follows in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What humility here. The humble Paul views himself as as the lesser part. They are the greater part. He's simply the, the lesser part. What drives this perspective, brethren? What fuels this kind of perspective? I'll tell you, to the Apostle Paul, Ministry is a privilege and not a right. Ministry is a privilege and not a right. He doesn't view himself as deserving of the privilege of sacrificing for Christ to sacrifice and serve his brethren. He sees that as a blessing to partner with them in the gospel. He's not self-entitled. 
I submit to you that this is the heart of, of the believer who, who, who learns to embrace sacrifice and service in the Christian life. The kind of person who sacrifices for others understands this. That ministry is a privilege, it is not a right. Right? And so our response when we are to lay down our lives for the need of someone else is not, well, I guess I have to do this. No, it's, I get to do this. That the God of the universe could do all of this by Himself, and yet He's calling me in partnership with Himself to serve His people, and I get to reap the benefits of that? And to experience joy and fulfillment and satisfaction? What a privilege, what a blessing. And I know that this is so countercultural, right? I mean, some folks can't even identify with this type of mindset because the name of the game for most people in our society is, what's in it for me? How can I benefit from this or that? But the redeemed, Christ-exalting kind of a believer says, what can I do to serve others? How can I meet a need? How can I sacrifice my life for others and die daily? Boy, This mindset is so important for us to get, brethren. Embracing sacrifice as a way of life is important for us, especially as Christians who live in America, a free country. It's especially important for us. You know why? Because our default kind of an attitude and response is self-entitlement. Well, I deserve that, or I don't deserve that ill-treatment. And so it's hard for us to identify with the sacrifice, for example, being made daily by some of our brethren in other countries of the world, right? I mean, I've been to other countries where Christians are working three to four jobs, brethren, some of them, three to four jobs just to put food on the table and clean water in their house, just to be able to buy diapers for their baby, working multiple jobs, all the while, by the way, involved in serving in the church. Listen to me, for them, humble, self-sacrificial service is simply the way of life. It's not an option. And it's their delight. They describe themselves, as I've told you before, oftentimes as as siervo, servant. Or in Southeast Asia, as servant. We're here to serve you, brother. What can we do to serve you? That is their main title for themselves. Servant. Very much Pauline, isn't it? Where he opens every letter. Servant, bondservant of Christ Jesus. But here in America, you know, we hear of Christians being persecuted or even martyred for their faith in other countries. And what's our response? What do we think to ourselves? Well, that will never, should never happen in America. That should never be the case. I'm just glad that we are okay. I'm glad that we won't ever be martyred for our faith. It may be so. It may be so, brethren, that maybe we won't wind up being martyred as as Paul, by the way, eventually was. It may be the case. But I want to remind us of this, that the Bible itself describes the Christian life itself as dying to oneself. Do you often think of the Christian life that way? Boy, following Jesus Christ is daily death to myself. Every day. Dying to self. is central. To being a follower of Christ, 
Jesus once addressed thousands of people who were after Him in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Thousands of people who were after Him for His gifts, for His benefits, for all of that. Even some of them who appreciated His words of wisdom and they saw Him as a wonderful teacher of wise sayings and nobility and all of that kind of stuff. Such a great humanitarian. And Jesus said this, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself. That is, say no to yourself. Abandon self and take up your cross, which was a symbol of death in those days, wasn't it? It could lead to your death. Take up your cross and come after me. That was language of death to self. See, it was normal. Jesus is saying the, what is normal about being a follower of mine is death to yourself. Dying to yourself. Every day, if you want to follow after me. That's not radical Christianity. That's normal Christianity. It's not radical Christianity. Paul sums up his life this way. And I've often told my sweet wife, honey, when I die, this is the the verse that I want on my tombstone. Right here. And and pray for me that I would live this out. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Boy, that's the motivation right there, isn't it? Why can't we sacrifice for one another in partnership with one another and serve one another relentlessly in light of the fact that Jesus died for us, gave everything for us? Paul had that motivation. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15.31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Every day I die. How so, Paul? By sacrificing himself for the Corinthian brethren, right? He served them. They were biting him left and right. The sheep were biting the shepherd, right, Paul? And he still served them. That's how he was dying daily. He lived this way all the way until the end of his life. At his second Roman imprisonment in 2 Timothy 4.6, he will say to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Paul says, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go home. He was willing to be spent for the sake of others because he knew, brethren, that it wasn't about the here and now, it's about the then and there, right? Paul lived with that mentality that it wasn't, this wasn't his home, that he's a pilgrim, that he's an alien. I hope that you long to go home, Right? I hope that you long to be home. Yes, there is work for, for us to do here in, on earth, but I hope that you are not so, so earthly-minded that you're no heavenly good, right? But that Col- Colossians chapter 3, you set your eyes on Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of God and that that fuels and propels you to be all the more on mission while in this world. But I hope that you long to be home with your Savior. Take note of that for our own lives, Right? eschatologically minded Christians are self-sacrificial Christians. Christians who have their sights fixed on, on the future end of all things, the then and there will be spent in the here and now. We will be giving ourselves for the good of others. 
We will count it a privilege to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because we know, brethren, that we are not living for this world, but for the one to come. So how about you this morning? Or late morning? How are you spending your life and being spent for others? You know, this applies to the context of our our home life. Very convicting. This applies to us husbands. How are we as husbands loving our wives and serving our wives, pouring out ourselves in the service of our families? Loving and caring for for our wives. Wives, how are you pouring out your life in the service and sacrifice of your family? Loving your husband, serving your family, all the while without complaint or grumbling in the heart. I've spoken to many women over the years, just going through the motions, doing all the stuff on the outside, right? And from the outside, it looks like they're doing all the, they're checking off all the boxes of responsibility, but their hearts are far from their husbands. They're grumbling and complaining within. Are you doing it from the heart, pouring out your life in the service and sacrifice of your family? This applies also to the way that we engage and enjoy our family. Put others, the needs of others in our homes before ourselves. So convicting, isn't it? And we all fall short of this. I know I do. Would you say that you're pouring out your life for the benefit of those in your home life? What about in the church? What about in the church? Are you pouring out your life for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Using what God has given you for the service of, of others, right? And this hits us two different ways. Formal service, ongoing formal service where we enlist as soldiers for Christ using the gifts and abilities that God has given us. But so much of, of ministry also happens organically, doesn't it? Behind the scenes. Like I had brothers this last week transitioning offices in the area, texted them, and, and they're there to serve behind the scenes and help me transport all those books, the million of them that I had, right? I'm not saying that boasting, by the way. A lot of books. But those brothers were there, organically caring for needs and meeting needs. Others showed up to, to you know, nail um, bookshelves to the wall and, and transition uh, the other, our other pastor's books to, the, to another office. I mean, so much of ministry happens like that, right? It's not always formal. A lot of times it's informal, brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are needs all over our church. There are people who are hurting. There are people who are struggling spiritually. There are people who need counseling. There are people who need one anothering by way of encouragement and comfort. There are people who need to be visited. There are people who just need a call to be encouraged or a text to encourage them and send them a scripture. Hey, I did the Bible reading today. I just wanted to encourage you with this brother and sister in Christ. See, informal, organic type of service and ministry, right? We are pouring out our lives for the sacrifice of one another. And it's a blessing, brothers and sisters, to serve and to sacrifice in this manner. Someone has wisely said this, the greatest and most worthwhile blessings of life come with the greatest degree of sacrifice. That's so true, right? If that's true in life, how much more in Christian service and ministry for others? And our Heavenly Father wants us to reap the wonderful blessings which come from laying down our lives for other people. And so if we're going to value 
the partnership that we share, we must first embrace the privilege of sacrificing Christian ministry and service. And I know that we need grace, brethren, as I do, to be able to flesh that out and live that out. Amen? Because it's a daily struggle to do that. But moving on. Moving on. Secondly, by God's grace, we must fight for joy in Christian ministry and service. Fight for joy in Christian ministry and service. This is in verse 18 or the end of verse 17 into verse 18. Oh, this is so challenging, isn't it? To be cultivating joy and exuding joy in the Christian life. But so critical, brethren, because this is what one of the main things that distinguishes biblical Christianity from any other religion or philosophical system where people can go through the motions on the outside and do all of the right things, quote-unquote, but exude no joy whatsoever in life. Christians are to be different. Do you remember the cartoon character in Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore, remember that guy? He's one of my favorite characters, but I didn't care so much for some of his other stuff, his expressions and all of that. Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, remember that guy? Always gloomy, always downcast, right? Even, even in happy moments, in some of those episodes, Eeyore always had the same facial expression on the outside, right? Always sad looking. Listen, there are Christians in churches who have an Eeyore type of a disposition. Right? Woe is me, you know. All right, Pastor Kempis, if you're preaching on sacrifice, I'll do that. Okay, you know. I'm thankful to do so and to sacrifice, so be it. Hey, don't be an Eeyore Christian. Don't be an Eeyore Christian. Paul wasn't, right? He's a sinner saved by grace, just like us. He's sitting in jail, doesn't know if he's going to live, doesn't know if he's going to die, and yet he's fighting for joy as he embraced sacrifice in his own life and his wonderful partnership with the Philippian brethren. We see it throughout the letter, this this joy. Chapter 1, verse 4, he's always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, he says. Chapter 1, verse 18, what then? What about those challenging relationships where there are guys that say that they're Christians, but they're preaching, and they're preaching the gospel, but they are rivals, they're coming after me, they're slandering me, they're speaking evil of me. What then? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this, in that Jesus is proclaimed, I rejoice, yet. Yes, and I will rejoice, he even repeats it. To make it a point, I'm going to have joy. I'm going to rejoice by the grace of God. Chapter 1, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. And ready for this? And joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete. How, Paul? By walking in unity and functional oneness in the light of your spiritual fellowship that you have in Jesus. Make my joy complete. Chapters 3, chapter 4, joy, rejoicing all over the place. And then here in chapter 2, verse 17, notice, verse 17, he writes to them, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. In other words, even if I'm the the complement, the topping that completes your sacrifice and service to Christ, I am delighted to do so and to die for your sake. I'm not reluctant. Some powerful stuff right there, isn't it? Only by the grace of God can we live that out. Sinners saved by grace, just like us. Right? Empowered by the same Spirit. 
There's no multiple different spirits, and, and Paul had a more powerful spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. Paul had the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit if we're in Christ, right? We can flesh this out by the grace of God. Not only do I rejoice, he says, I want to share my joy with you all. I mean, he's not, only, he's not content with simply possessing personal joy. He wants them too to have this joy so that there's this full-orbed communal togetherness kind of a joy, a culture and an atmosphere of joy where he rejoices personally and he shares his joy with his fellow brothers and sisters and they share their joy with him. And it's a culture that permeates a church of joy. That's what he's after here. Notice that his attitude was not, oh, I guess I have to sacrifice for others and serve God. You know? Instead it was this, I get to sacrifice for others and serve Christ. What a privilege, right? Again, God could have done this all by Himself, but He's invited me to be His partner. Again, where does that come from? Ministry is a privilege, not a right. We don't deserve this, right? And when we forget this, that ministry is a privilege, not a right, What we do, brothers and sisters, is that we are robbed of ongoing joy in our lives, right? You've experienced that, and I have as well. But Paul is joyful, and he wants his brethren to experience the privilege and and benefit of, of sacrificial joy as well. Look at verse 18. He adds, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Not only do I rejoice and share my joy with you, I want you to reciprocate my joy in this gospel partnership as we sacrifice for one another. By the way, this joy is not optional. Okay, Those are imperatives or commands in verse 18. You rejoice, command, imperative, and share your joy with me, command or imperative. Note that, mark it, right? He places the responsibility on them as well to be people of joy. He says, he says this is not optional. It, you're commanded to rejoice. Underline that, brothers and sisters. Or note that. It's not only beneficial that we rejoice, but we are commanded to cultivate joy in our lives. Is it going to be easy? Oh, no. Not going to be easy. It's a daily fight and a struggle to live joyfully, right? Why? Because we often think that we know better than God. We often think that, that you know what, I, our, my circumstances should not be this way. Did God fall asleep at some point in time? You know? Maybe He fell asleep. Maybe He doesn't understand what's going on. No. He knows. Let me tell you what fuels joy. I know this is true in my own life. What fuels joy, brothers and sisters, is love. Love for God and love for others. See, joy has substance. Paul is not just commanding them here. Hey, have joy. Rejoice. Just do it. Right? There is substance and truth that feeds and fuels our joy. And at the top of the list is love for God and love for others. This is what motivated our Lord Jesus during His earthly life, right? The glory of God and love for people, love for sinners, mercy upon people and compassion upon people as He anticipated the, the sacrifice of the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Ready for this? Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross 
despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus loved, therefore He joyfully gave His life knowing what His sacrifice would accomplish. It would glorify the Father and fulfill His eternal plans and it would save sinners by faith alone. Right? It's the same with us, brethren. Love for God and love for others fuels our joy. Our our joy has substance. It has substance. In fact, go with me. Keep your finger there in Philippians chapter 2 and go forward with me to 1 Thessalonians. Okay? A few pages to your right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to show you this. That our joy is fueled by certain things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Typical Pauline fashion. He's giving thanks for these Thessalonian believers. And then look at 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Constantly, constantly bearing in mind, watch this, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. See the three couplets there? The three groupings of words, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. You see those? Three couplets, three groupings of these words there. The key question to ask about these is this. What produces what? What fuels what? Does the, does the work produce the faith? Does the labor produce the love? Or does the steadfastness produce the hope? Which one is it? Or better... Is the work fueled or produced by the faith? The labor produced or fueled by the love? And is the perseverance or steadfastness produced by our hope? Which way is it? What produces what? I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. Note, our faith in God, in His promises, in His character, fuels your work for Christ. Our love for God and for others fuels labor to the point of exhaustion, self-sacrificial service and meeting of needs for others. Our hope in God, anchored in our hope in God through Jesus Christ, fuels our steadfastness or perseverance or endurance in Christ so that we make it all the way unto the end because our eyes are fixed on who? Jesus. He is our hope. And so, if you're struggling with working for Jesus and laboring for Jesus or or persevering in Christ with your steadfastness, what's the key? What's the key? Just do it? Just do it? I mean, yes, when we don't feel like it, feel like having joy, we still should obey the Lord, yes? I think we should repent of the lack of heart attitude. But what's the key to cultivating joy in the Christian life? I'll tell you, right? You need to bulk up your faith. Bulk up your faith if you want to work for Jesus joyfully, right? Cultivate a greater sense of confidence in God and in His promises so that you're strengthened in your faith to work for Him without grumbling and complaining. Chapter 2, verse 14. Because your faith is being fueled or fueling your work for God. What about if you're struggling with labor for others and sacrifice for others? Well, you need to cultivate a greater love for God and for others, right? So that your love is is strong so that your love is hot and fervent for others. And therefore, you're driven to want to labor to the point of exhaustion and sacrifice yourself for other people. 
with joy. What about if you're struggling with steadfastness or endurance or perseverance? Well, you need to cultivate a greater sense of hope in God, in His character, and in His promises, in Jesus, and the Gospels, and then you will grow in steadfastness and perseverance in the Christian life. Why? Because your hope is anchored not in your passing, changing circumstances or life situations, right? Or in the unmet expectations of life, but in God and in Christ. Faith, hope, Love, these are what fueled the early Christians, brethren, in the face of sacrifice and suffering to still be faithful, right? And to do so with joy. You remember Acts chapter 5, verse 41? The religious leaders grab a hold of the disciples and basically they flog them and they forbid them from preaching Jesus. Do you remember what it says in Acts 5, 41? It says that they went on their way after this happened, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You see that? There was a supernatural, spirit-empowered, enabled joy that came over them in the midst of giving their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Where did the joy come from? Where did the rejoicing come from? Strong faith, fervent love for God and others, and their hope was anchored in Christ, right? Because they knew that if they were taken out and they were killed or martyred, what was going to happen? They know where they're going. (laughs) They know who they're going to be with, right? Like Paul, or to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He can say that. He says, I know where I'm going. Take me out. I know where I'm heading because of Christ. It's the same for us, brethren. So you see, it's not that Paul is just saying, have joy. Right? Just do it. Just go through the motions. Put on a facade on the outside. No, this joy is fueled by truth. Faith, hope, love. Those things fuel sacrificial joy. Someone has said this, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. Right? In other words, the higher cost you're willing to pay to serve others and to sacrifice for others, the greater the reward. Right? of Spirit-produced, Spirit-empowered, supernatural joy in the Christian life. I mean, you've experienced this, haven't you? Have you experienced this? There's this need that arises, and you say to yourself, i got so much to do. I mean, i got so much going on in my own life. You know, i got my own things to take care of. I just don't have time to meet that need. Have you ever been there? I have. But then there's that inner conviction, Right? The Holy Spirit begins to speak to you through His Word, revealing Himself to you and the truth of the Word of God, convicting you of your self-entitlement and your self-centeredness. And before you know it, you jump in and you meet that need and you help, right? Albeit reluctantly at first, not from the heart. You repent of that later, of course. But then you meet that need. How do you feel? How do you feel about that? I can tell you in my life, there's this deep sense of joy. Oh, Thank you, Lord. There's a satisfaction, right, that I did the right thing, that I followed in the footsteps of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ever been there? What a joy. I've been there many times, brethren. The joy of sacrifice. Now, some people may hear that kind of a language, right? You know, sacrifice and, and joy. Come on, you know? Is that even real? That must be some, some radical type of Christianity that you're talking about. Uh-uh. It's normal Christianity. It's normal. This is not radical or some elitist type of Christianity. That doesn't exist. 
This is the call of the gospel, brethren. The way of life for the simple follower of Jesus is that we give our lives in self-sacrifice for the worship of God and the good of others. That's the pattern. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, he says, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You hear that? In light of the tender pities of God, he says, in light of the fact that he saved you, it is right, it is logical, it is, it is reasonable, he says, that you would lay down your life to serve others. Again, this is motivated by love for God and love for others, right? It's love in action that we're called to. In fact, that is what love is. Love is the self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of another person with joy. The self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of another person with joy. Amen? My question for us this morning as we close this is this. Are you choosing to live a life of joyful, self-sacrificial service for others? As an expression of your love for Christ. As an expression of even what He's done for you. What would be the litmus test of your self-sacrifice in the present? Is it hot or cold? Is it lukewarm? Pertinent questions for us to ask ourselves, right? What we learn from the Apostle Paul, a sinner saved by grace, just like us, brethren, is that he found joy in laying down his life for his ministry partners, the Philippian church, and he appreciated and valued the connection that they had with one another. He viewed it as an undeserved privilege to lay down his life for his brothers and sisters as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had done for him, right? My prayer is that we would cultivate the same kind of heart and perspective individually and collectively as a church. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful grace, your wonderful word that reminds us of the wonderful partnership that we have with you through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, on the horizontal level, with other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us to be self-sacrificial servants, to remember that, Lord, we no longer live for ourselves, but we are called now to lay down our lives for the good of others. And that brings not only present joy and a sense of fulfillment that we are glorifying you and blessing our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it, is, it brings eternal joy. It's the way of the cross. It was the way of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.